I don't know, it's a lot of rambling there, but there's there's something like melancholy at the uh, at the thought that we just can't predict what we're gonna be in five to ten years. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polodori, and I believe that you'll probably be able to say that tagline for the intro when you're on your deathbed and you're just full of, like, murmurs. I legit am going to get it tattooed on my body, bro. There's, like... (laughs) (laughs) I've got to be just, like... I don't know what it's maybe not the whole thing, but just like a couple of highlights from it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like maybe just bullshit with impunity or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, but, it'd be uh, weird if you had a word. We're just two dudes um, <laughs> tattooed on your body. Like, is there some kind of like weird metaphysical claim happening here? Yeah, yeah. Ex- this is yeah. Ex- <laughs> people will look at it and they'll be like, "Hmm, interesting." I'll be like, "Look, man, I'm I'm a multifaceted being. We we contain <laughs> multitudes. We contain, I contain multitudes. Shitty I'm sorry. multitudes. Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, look, everybody, we took a little bit of a hiatus. I think it was something I definitely needed. I needed to have a little bit of a break um, just to get through some shit in my own life. And Troy, I, I hope, are you good? Are you refreshed? Or you're all ready to get this show back on the road here? Yeah, dude. I don't know about refreshed, but whatever's like the, <laughs> the next category, uh, lesser than like refreshed. What is that? Like a, like a good uh, splash of water on the face. Okay, you're alert. That, that, but existentially, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really good. We could write. We should write a paper on that. Like, what is the existential quality of a splash of cold water on the face? Because that's me. That's me. <laughs> uh, well, sweet. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to actually kick things back off by talking about an article, a little bit of an older article from Wendy Brown from 1999 called Resisting Left Melancholy. Can you give just a little 15-second snippet on what we're going to be discussing this episode? Yeah, so actually, I had, I'd had this article saved for a long time. I think it was actually, if I remember correctly, Doug Henwood, who once recommended this as being kind of the classic article on the political left in America, and that even though it was um, 20 years old, it was still uh, very prescient even for... Um, uh, sort of the state of the left right now, especially kind of post the the Bernie peak or whatever you want to call 2016 through 2020. Um, mm. And so I don't remember, I don't remember if there's a context to specifically why she wrote it other than responding to, as we'll talk about, um, some work by Stuart Hall and some stuff from Walter Benjamin's thesis in the philosophy of history that a lot of people know. Um, so if you know there's a, if there's a more immediate context to it than that, then you can fill me in there. But other than that, it's basically just kind of giving a little bit of a, not necessarily a postmortem on the left, but more of like a state of, uh, like a, um, a state of the nation or whatever, a state of the union as far as the left mm. is concerned, um, after, you know, some sense of loss, right? Political, mm. mostly political, but, you know, social, moral, and otherwise. Yeah, cool. And I think even if it's outdated, in some ways, um, it, it's also not in a lot of ways. Like just some of this, the the issues that characterize the crisis of the left in 1999 still characterize a, what we might call a crisis of the left today. 
But I think even more importantly than that, there's something really interesting and astute about this kind of like conceptual mechanism that she uses, this notion of melancholy that I found to be really a valuable way of not only understanding the kind of political malaise, but also that really kind of is a good concept to use in our own experiences of melancholy versus mourning. And of course, we'll get into this and explain what this means once we jump into the uh, main segment. But I just found it really useful as a kind of like conceptual tool, you know, to kind of yeah. put some put some teeth into um, some some analytical some analytical lenses that um, I think is is useful moving forward as like a a little heuristic device almost. So I, I'm excited to talk with you about it. Um, yeah, is there any housekeeping stuff we got to get out of the way before we jump into the show? I think we should just mention that uh, if you want to support us, um, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to some tiers of support where we have access to stuff like uh, our past catalog of bonus episodes, um, the Discord server um, that we maintain, and um, the ability to vote on the next patron-sponsored episode, which should be coming relatively soon. So we have yeah, a, a current yeah. vote up there, and so we'll be probably announcing, I probably by the time that this um, episode airs, what the next patron-sponsored episode, or at least the, um, the ability to vote on the options for the next patron-sponsored episode, I should say. Yeah, 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 sounds good. Look, man, we're kind of trying to pick up the pieces a little bit after about a six-week, was it two-month, six-week break? I don't even know how long it's been. It feels like it's been a fucking year. So we're trying to pick up the pieces a little bit and figure out, how do we do this damn thing? I kind of forgot how to do it. But you know what? I just remembered. I know how we do it. Troy, how do we start things off? How do we start off every episode? Oh, we start off every episode with, the, like, the pump-up, right? The anthem, right? Like, calling out the lineups, like, with the trap music playing. But we call that since we're boring academic white guys, the shitty minute. And this is where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears for the last week plus, you know, depending upon the context of the release of this episode. So Austin, what's been getting you down lately? So, um, you know, we're back in lockdown here in Sydney, which has given me a lot of uh, ample time to catch up on a show that I had never watched before, which is The Walking Dead. Right, And I remember when the show was out that everyone would constantly – because, you know, it was released week by week on – was it AMC at first? Um, I don't know yeah. if it switched over. but And so back in the old days, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when a show was released week by week and you didn't binge it, you never – there was like this – there was time to debate furiously each episode and who died and who was killed off and how they died and the violence of the show and was there meaning to the violence of the show and are there themes about this group of people living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland of trying to put life back to normal like put it back together can they ever come back you know there were all these like really interesting things that were being tweeted or written about it and I caught a lot of that but I never ever watched the show so I mean I feel like I kind of I got very broad generalized strokes about what the show was about out, but I never really knew like the meat and potatoes of it, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, my shitty minute is really this. First of all, I fucking hate when they kill somebody that you love, and I don't just for, in case anybody is out there and hasn't seen The Walking Dead, I won't spoil anything because part of the enjoyment, in a perverse way, maybe of the show, is like being like, who are they gonna kill next? Which is really <laughs> fucked up, and it also makes you think really fucked up things. Like things will happen in the show, and you're like, oh well, they gotta kill that person now, and you're like, yeah, but that's a that's a person, and you really get invested in wanting to have a human murdered, right, in this show. <laughs> so it also makes you kind of dark, but um. 
really my shitty minute is this. There's all this talk, and Troy and I were actually just talking about this off-air, and I was like, wait, hold on, that's going to be my shitty minute. Let's not get into it too much. Um, There's a lot of talk in the show about, okay, so this zombie outbreak has happened, and they're trying to, one, survive, but then two, is there a way that they can go back to normal, you know? Um, In season two, I believe it is. Is it season three? Season three, they find this prison. I, I, the seasons are blurring together for me already. Um, they find this prison and they kind of hunker down in this prison and then, um, you know, after a while they start, you know, um, planting vegetables and things like that in um, in the garden and um, they start trying to build a life for themselves. And one of the things that they're talking about is, can we ever go back? You know, can we go back? And it made me think a lot about the fucking pandemic that we are currently going through, or just in general, this notion of can we ever go back? Like once there's been some sort of trauma, once there's been some sort of cut, once there's been some sort of of huge chasm that's been opened up in a world, you know, um, what does repair look like? What does return look like? What does going back look like? And I don't know, man. I The more I think about it, the more I think that the kind of post-COVID world is going to be something like a post-9-11 world where we're going to look back at it and be like, the fucking world changed. And people are going to be able to draw like these insanely large networks of causal effects that are drawn back to, oh, and it happened under these conditions. It was because of this critical event that lasted two years or three years or whatever you know like maybe it's just one of those events that will it's like an open event it's like perpetually eventing (laughs) to use the participle version of it i guess um so maybe we're just in a process of eventing the covid eventing um and i don't know man i i don't see that there will ever be a sort of way back to quote unquote normal you know, I think people have learned too much. People have spent a lot of time on the internet too, so people have read a lot, and so people are getting more jaded, I think, and I think people are becoming even more and more, maybe not apolitical, but th- this is obviously interesting because Wendy Brown's work deals with this a lot, but they're becoming more and more skeptical and critical of democracy, um, and um, or they're becoming more and more skeptical of uh, representative democracy, I should say, maybe. Um, and so I don't know. I think there's going to be massive shifts in the social, political, cultural landscape that I just think – I don't know if we're ever going to be able to go back. And I wonder if are we living at the end of the world already? Not like the cusp of the end of the world, but are we living after the end of the world, so to speak? You know, the end of a world, maybe in Marcus Gabriel's sense. You know, this idea that there was this single unifying vision and and maybe – uh, they try to like piece it back together every once in a while. Maybe like World War II was the end of a particular world, and then maybe Reagan and Thatcher was the end of another world, and then um, the the collapse of the Berlin Wall was the end of another world, and then 9/11 was the end of another world, and um, maybe 2008 GFC was a, another world, and this is maybe another world that is collapsed. I don't know, but uh, it's kind of interesting to think about maybe living at the end of the world, and it's just fucking. I don't know, man. I don't really know what to think. I don't really know how to think about it because um, there's a lot going on. I don't know, like, should I – am I being, like, overly rhetorical and poetic with this or is there something interesting to think about here? And I really – I really don't know how to engage. And I think over the past couple months for me, it's actually led to a lot of um, maybe melancholy, maybe a little bit of left melancholy. Um, it's definitely led to me – I don't know, having a little bit of a crisis of confidence with like productive output and things like that. It's kind of like, why, you know, 
Like, why am I engaging with certain things? And it's make me just wanted to like create stuff, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's had an interesting impact on me. So it's kind of a shitty minute, but yeah, that's that's where my head is at. Yeah, I also, I mean, we can maybe use this as a segue to getting into the brown stuff because you already connected it there. But I'm also in this state of just thinking, you know, if there's any lesson we can take from the last, you know, five, six years or so, it's got to be something like whatever happens, we just weren't going to be able to predict it. There's too many variables at play. We like to think that like, you know, end of history type stuff kind of rhetoric that was happening in the 90s makes it so that you know whatever happens there may be like you know s- some shifts here and there and some bumps here and there on the road but basically we kind of know what the next 20 years are going to look like you know with a few you know curveballs thrown in or whatever right but i wouldn't be fucking surprised if tomorrow that like you know nasa announced that a meteor was coming and like you know 30 million people were going to die so yeah um, and you know that's obviously like at a cosmic scale but even just on even at the level of things we can control so unlike a meteor even that we can't really control. We can't even control like getting enough people vaccinated in the country so that we have something approaching herd immunity. Um, so even amongst the things we can collectively control, it's just we kind of know it's not going to happen. And so, given that we're just kind of at this, you know, going by the seat of our pants on a lot of this stuff, socially speaking, and that provides, yeah, it's a kind of destabilizing feeling. Like, I mean. Imagine engaging in a multi-year-long project where you're, you know, working on something and knowing that you don't know what the world's going to look like in a few years. Um, that's rough. That, that's destabilizing. And yeah, I think that it's appropriate to think about loss of that sort of stabilization as being melancholy because it's not really the case that that kind of stabilization ever really existed. There was more like a facade that it existed and that facade has mm. been poked through, right? And so mm. dealing with sort of the realization of what was really happening all the time or sort of the manifestation of what was really all happening all the time, like a revelation really in the biblical sense. Um, mm. That's, that's tough to, it's tough to internalize. And I think also, you know, once we're, if we're back together, like in a community and, and with each other, I know you're like going through some of the most strenuous lockdowns Australia's ever been through, through this whole process. Yeah. And like parts of the U S like LA now are getting, starting inching back towards that um i I am a bit concerned that that's just going to mean like doing it twice is just going to destroy everyone's spirit i mean we've already just seen like you know some of the studies done about the rise in interpersonal violence that happened during 2020 um as well as some other like i think i read something the other day that said something like uh um deaths by suicide were up 30 percent it was a death by suicide or death by despair generally i can't remember which but it was something like estimated as rising 30%. And again, nothing to do with necessarily policy, but just sort of the upheaval to social social life and um, familial life for people that was sudden and everyone was unprepared for um, being the root cause of that. And which would have happened, you know, lockdown or no, because because um, of COVID. So I don't know, it's a lot of rambling there, but there's, there's something like melancholy at the... Uh, at the thought that we just can't predict where we're going to be in five to ten years. I mean, this is like the the embodiment of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? Because when everyone mm-hmm. talks about going back to normal, that's what they mean. They're like, let's just make sure we bring the markets back and let's just make sure we bring our socioeconomic realities back to what they were before, right? Let's just get people working again. It's so interesting too. You can hear it in people's language, right? Like when restrictions are imposed and people are going to be out of work, 
certain people are going to be like, oh man, this is really going to affect businesses. And some people are like, oh man, this is really going to affect workers. And I'm always like, it's always like what's on the tip of somebody's tongue, right? And when you listen to the news and stuff like that, they're like, well, how can we make sure that we get money to businesses? Whereas when I'm like sitting around talking to my friends who are casuals or who work in hospitality, they're like, how the fuck am I going to pay my rent? You know, they're like, they're like, that's the concern. And, And it just shows that we are just like ill-equipped to actually address these things in any sort of novel or creative or um, I don't know what other adjective to use, but ways that would actually maybe address the the real sort of problematics that are proposed or that, that are presented, you know? And it's just people trying to use old rhetoric. It's people trying to use old forms of stimulus. It's people trying to use old forms of, quote, getting things back to normal, you know? And it's like, I don't know if we're just going to be able to get businesses back to normal, right? Like, I, I can't remember what the numbers were. My dad said something ridiculous, like, but like thousands, is it like 20,000 restaurants or something like that in the the Southern California area are like shut down permanently. I mean, I, I don't know if that number is, is right or not, but it's like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of places are shut down and that's just in one area, right? So what the fuck does getting back to normal look like? Does it mean just getting small businesses loans from financial institutions um, so that they can go back to continuing the cycle of capital or like, like, like to me, that's what that's what getting back to normal seems to mean on the tip of most mm. people's tongues, both um, politicians, but also the media, and then I think even the average person, because that's just what we know. That's just what we know, and we don't know how to think after the end of the world, right? And I think that's what we really need to start thinking about. What does it mean to live after the end of the world? And that's why The Walking Dead is so interesting, because they're fucking living after the end of the world. That show... <laughs> I even said that at one point when I was watching it, and I was like, this show is – it's already after the end of the world, right? The world is done, and this is – okay, what does – like do you go back into some sort of Hobbesian state of reality? They kind of have a little bit of that, but then is it is it is there like – I mean, because the people just become violent, but then it's like, oh, but they want to they, – they want to transcend that and um, – kind of appeal to the sort of angels of our better nature kind of aspect, you know, sort of thing. So it's it's a really interesting sort of philosophical anthropology. and But they're definitely living after the end of the world, and I feel like so are we, and we need to have more creative strategies for, one, affirming that and not resisting it. Like, there's just a fucking, like, in the Nietzschean sense, nihilism, I think, but for most people, because they're refusing to accept that actually it is the end of the world, and they're trying so hard to hold on to some old image, and they're trying to reproduce it. And it's actually fucking perfect that we're going to then dive into this essay by Wendy Brown because it does seem that there's maybe even a melancholy that is driving the kind of political will of people that are trying to return to normal, you know, because they're clinging so hard to this old object and then it's just making them more and more miserable and being more and more counterproductive. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it, I, yeah, I, I just want to get on my bullshit a second on top of that because I, I – wholeheartedly agree and i and i want to point out i think it's super important to point out that that's it's understandably rational for people to have that response um to wanting things to go back to normal given that oh, yeah. it's all that they know now uh, apart from like cynical politicians and small business owners who clearly you know just want to get back to exploiting workers for most regular people it's perfectly understandable and rational to want quote-unquote normality even if they 
even if it's exploitative and even if it's ultimately bad for them, because we have a system set up that that's the best we can really do, right? It's better than the current state of affairs. Um, so they just want to go back to it, even if it's bad. Uh, and that goes back to the fact that you know we have a socioeconomic system set up, and this is you know this is my bullshit part of it again, where we kind of use this utilitarian logic that says that something like pleasure and happiness is the only good. We can't really measure those things. So the only proxy we have for pleasure or happiness is preference satisfaction slash money, right? So if we can just maximize the amount of um, capital flows that exist uh, in the market, then we are basically approximating maximizing happiness or pleasure, right? So it's like a proxy yeah. we have for gaining the highest good. And so as long as we can just have that system set up, then we're achieving something like the social good. And yeah, mm -hmm. everyone kind of knows unless you're at the top of that grid, then that sucks for you and it's exploitative and it's terrible and it doesn't actually bring you anything like satisfaction or contentment. Um, but at the very least, it's a system, right? It's doing something. Uh, even if it's mm. ultimately not really good for human beings, or even though, certainly not the best for human beings, like the optimal good. And so what we currently have is basically just like a patchwork of just trying to get through the day kind of a thing, right? Like when you're feeling shitty and so you just like down a bunch of medicine and, and like drink a bunch of Robitussin so you can just get through the day until you can get home and go to sleep. And it's like, mm. yeah, that, that's an okay temporary thing to do given the state of affairs. But if you had to do that day in and day out, like you just wish for almost like just being normal, low-grade sick again, right, in response to it. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's a tortured analogy. Probably doesn't work ultimately now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I, I do want to like point out that the key there is that it's it's rational and understandable for people to want normality. The key would just be once yeah. we sort of like acknowledge that, reflecting on it and realizing where ultimately it's not really a satisfactory answer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, the desire for normality is a sort of like habit to sort of get to a sense of homeostasis because that's what we know, right? Mm -hmm. But um, there's something interesting in this article too that uh, I think it's a quote from Benjamin that has – or no, maybe it was from Freud. I don't know. We'll get there at some point. But it's this idea that um, that uh, it's for the sake of knowledge. Oh, yeah, it is from Benjamin. It's that uh, – so she says, in the origin of German tragic drama, he argues that melancholy betrays the world for the sake of knowledge because it converts truth, which is like a new vow or memory, about its beloved into a thing, right? And it imbues knowledge itself with a thing-like quality. And that's kind of what it makes me think that this desire for the kind of the, the, the normality of the past is or the normality of homeostasis or the normality of the familiar, it's like thingifying it, you know? And I think that... Um, that there's something not that that's bad it's not like a, i'm not trying to make some sort of like i don't know censorious judgment against it or something like that but i think it kind of recognizes okay so that's the that's the default but then here's the awareness of it is the cool thing is that if we can be aware that that's what we're trying to do with this sort of thing to get back to normal then at that same time the recognition of that tendency towards closure or homeostasis or thingifying is actually like a higher we're doing that from a higher standpoint in a proper Hegelian sense, you know? So that actually recognizes that, okay, we, we can be outside of it or beyond it or we're already beyond it. So then I would just want to be like, okay, so then let's attest and affirm to that beyond. Let's think from the end of the world. And that I don't fucking – that's interesting, you know, to really take that seriously. Baudrillard talks about that. That's kind of what his postmodern project is in a lot of ways, you know? So, <laughs> But maybe we should put a button on this and talk about this in the main segment because we're – kind of veering into that territory what do you think well I, th 
I think we're already in the main segment. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's totally appropriate because as I was reading the essay, um, I, this is all I was thinking about, was not how this applies to 1999 politics or really even how it applies to 2020 politics from the left perspective, but just how it applies to sort of cultural analysis of where we are generally right now, not even as a leftist necessarily, although obviously the, the sort of analysis we're going to give is going to be from a leftist perspective. And that's totally appropriate, I think. I mean, maybe if we can just, as a, like a, a formal transition point, we can talk about the difference that I think you've already mentioned, the difference between melancholy and mourning um, that Brown's kind of taking from Freud as a uh, set of psychoanalytic categories and then applying it to political analysis. So is that appropriate, you think? That's like a yeah, let's fucking just jump point. into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally we would have a music transition point, but fuck it. We're just going through it today. Boom. Main segment. We're in it. Go ahead. Yeah, like we're, we're waking up with a hangover and going to work anyway, right? We're putting our sunglasses on, right? We still have our board yeah. shorts on. Like we don't do transitions Absolutely. today. <laughs> Absolutely. That's like wearing pants, man. We ain't doing that. Yeah, dude. So um, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah let's – do you want to start with that distinction or do you want to – start with like the problem first that she identifies because that might be important yeah sure you want to go ahead with that yeah so real quick so don't forget what you're going to say about the distinction between melancholy and mourning um just real quick basically what she says is that you know there's there's a crisis of the left this is she derives this from the cultural theorist Stuart hall that there's a crisis of the left that isn't due to internal divisions in the activist or academic left and it's also not due to like the clever rhetoric or funding schemes of the right right um he says that actually this this crisis is the left's own failure to, one, apprehend the character of the age, and then, two, its failure to develop a political critique and a moral political vision that is appropriate to this character. So that's kind of the idea. Those are the the two prongs, if you will. A failure to apprehend the actual character of the age, and then, therefore, a failure to develop a critique, and then, also, therefore, a moral and political vision that will address this character. So that's basically it. And then um, he says, Hall, Stuart Hall says, Wendy Brown is referring to Stuart Hall here, says that there's this anachronistic habit of thought, right? It's this mm-hmm. tied to the past, this habitual thinking that is tied to the past. Um, and that there are fears and ex- anxieties about revising that habit of thought or those habits of thought that kind of like entrench the left in a sort of narcissistic um, kind of self self aggrandizing but also self loathing um, cyclical pattern. So that's kind of how she sets up the article and then um, and then go ahead because she makes this distinction about like how to kind of diagnose this problem. Yeah, so she takes from Freud kind of psychoanalytic posture to diagnosing the state of the left. And given that, you know, she, she sort of uh, introduces the problem, as, as you just said, as being one of not the left's like conscious academic disputes or like the, you know, the Goliath-like enemy that is the right just, you know, being so much better at doing politics, which are often yeah. the boogeyman, right? Um, those two things, they play a role, certainly, but they're not the kind of fundamental issue uh, that's that's producing this symptom that we're talking about for the left of melancholy. And so she introduces this distinction between mourning and melancholy that comes from Freud. And I thought this was, you know, Freud gets, you know, a pretty bad rap these days, I think, um, even amongst leftists, it seems like. 
even 20 mm-hmm. years ago, it seems like you could cite Freud and it, you could make like good distinctions with it. But nowadays, I feel like people would stop listening if you mentioned Freud. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If that's just me, but that just seems to be the case. But this I thought was a super helpful distinction, um, both for political analysis, but even just generally speaking, as, a, as an important I loved distinction it. Yeah. in like psychology, and that mourning is a sort of response to the loss of something beloved, where that loss actually occurs, and so you have this kind of it seems to me appropriate, like normatively appropriate response of mourning that loss because something valuable in the world is now gone. And so mourning is like this, you know, it's just very human trait to appropriately respond to the loss of that valued thing. Hmm. Whereas melancholia is more complex, it's less conscious, it's more part of the unconscious. And it's it's responding to the loss of an ideal of the beloved. So um, mm. I think Brown mentioned this in the article, but the way I pictured it, and maybe this was kind of riffing on what she was saying, was like, you know, melancholia, like mourning is when, you know, you're, the beloved dies and they're just mm. gone and you have to respond to that. And you go through a process, right, of grief and, and mourning and then you, you kind of get through it. You never really repair the loss. It's always there. But you kind of, you work your way appropriately and normatively through um, that process. Whereas melancholia, it's the loss of the ideal. So like the beloved doesn't even have to actually die or no longer exist. It just has to, in a sense, betray your ideal of it. So really, it's not the loss of the object or the thing or the beloved person um, or whatever it is, but it's actually just more about your own reflections on yourself, usually Mm. at an unconscious level, right? Where the ideal of something you had has been broken or punctured in a way that you can't recover. And so really it's you doing it the whole time. You're both active yes. and passive in the process, but you can't admit that to yourself because if you were to admit mm. that to yourself, then you would know that you're causing your own your own disease, right? Um, and mm. that's not a thing you can really admit to yourself without realizing that sort of you're the problem <laughs> and not like something that happened in the world outside of your control. And so this is why melancholia yeah. is persistent. It just continues forever as long as the conditions um, subsist that support it. Um, and it's narcissistic is the term she uses pretty regularly in this article to describe it because it's fully you know, self-reflective um, and self-focused, even though at least partially unconscious uh, given um, the state of what it is. So yeah, there's there's so much there. I think it's, it's a great way, a great heuristic, I think is the word you use, which I also put that in my notes as like a heuristic tool for analyzing not just like the state of a political movement or like the left in America, but even just for thinking about um, in general, thinking about like political philosophy, thinking about social groups, thinking about interpersonal relationships. Um, mm. It's it's super helpful uh, having that uh, distinction in mind. Yeah, I mean, to take this away from the political and to place it in the personal realm i mean you see this a lot with like the loss of let's say a relationship right and, and particularly maybe a relationship mm-hmm. that wasn't the healthiest relationship right i mean you see this also with healthy relationships but like what happens after a breakup a lot of times like you look back on it and you just remember the good times right <laughs> and and you're like man you know we had all this and and i don't know if this is just some sort of like protective mechanism that we oftentimes do and it's not always the case but a lot of times right we kind of like brush over like the oh that's why it didn't work 
because maybe you're in a maybe you're feeling shitty in the moment now and you're like oh man it was so nice when I had that person around and we did these things and you forget that oh actually it just fundamentally did not work and you know maybe there's also something good about that because it kind of helps you to kind of just get over your bitterness and anger and you can kind of kind of have a more robust picture of this past thing but um but there is idealization that's taking place there there's fantasy that's taking place there right and yeah, re- I think remember a lot Nietzsche of ta- saying that like forgetting is absolutely necessary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> otherwise yeah. we would we would just be like enveloped in the memories of all the wrongs, both <laughs> done to us and done by us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forgetting is definitely good in that sense, so we don't just fucking become awash with despair. Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's something that happens a lot of times when when you lose that object, and and it's what are you losing? Are you mourning the person? You know, or mm. is it more that you're mourning the life that you thought you were building with that person? Is it that you're losing the fantasy of the life that you thought you were aiming towards? Are you losing yeah. all of the things that you've abstracted and that you've turned into these images? And is it those things that really are what are the, the, the real cause of heartbreak? And I think, I think that that's actually a really kind of important way of understanding a lot of times you know, the loss of a love object, you know? Um, and in Freudian terms, we can call it a cathectic object. It's this object that you literally imbue yourself into. And so there is a sense in which you've lost a part of yourself, but you've lost an idealized part of yourself. And so there's this really interesting quote uh, here from Freud where, um, or it's not a quote, but it's a paraphrase, but Brown says that Freud suggests that the melancholic subject is low in regard, despairing, even suicidal, that this melancholic subject has shifted the reproach of the once-loved object onto itself, thus preserving the love or idealization of the object, even as the loss of this love is experienced in the suffering of the melancholic. So the object doesn't become the thing of reproach. It's the person, right? It's the self. And it somehow turns into um, what is what is... Benjamin say later like this tenacious self-absorption right you become self-absorbed and it turns on oneself Um, and so there's this really interesting pathological um, maybe we could call it narcissistic but I feel like that's almost too critical it's already critical and I don't know I think maybe more in just like the analytical sense in the sense of it really is just kind of like self-obsessed kind of pathological one obsession but also um, dislike, maybe, but maybe that's not a strong enough a, a term that's going on, but it allows to preserve the idealization of the object as though somehow it still has its power or as though it still, still deserves to be loved in the same way. And so it's carried forward and it still compels you forward. And that maybe is like the engine that drives the machine of this, this cycle of melancholy, right? But it is accompanied by self-flagellation. <laughs> so it's a really yeah, that, strange dynamic, yeah. Yeah, and that makes me think, you know, so what's, it seems to me like mourning is a thing that's sort of functionally appropriate. There's something, or there, there's something functionally appropriate about it. Um, not just because mourning helps us get through the process of grief, but it's also like, it's it's the way you actually show love and respect to a thing that you can no longer actually like do things that make them believe that you love them right if, if you're in a living mm. relationship with somebody then you can then you can't just like love them you actually have to show them that you love them right, right. you can't just like love right. them from afar and then all of a sudden you're like you're actually paying homage to the 
the valuable thing that they are or whatever. That's kind of like weird and creepy. And there's some other like <laughs> psychoanalytic concepts we can go down the, to diagnose that. But you actually show them that they are valuable and matter, right? Through your actions. Mm-hmm. And you sort of are supposed to do it in such a way that they can be aware of it and like form beliefs about it and be esteemed by it. And then they reciprocate, right? And it's this mutually reinforcing great thing. And so when the person, like the beloved dies or in some sense is no longer there, um, you, you're still like, they're a huge part of your mind. Like the contents of your mind are still yeah. occupied by them. So you have to do something about it. You can't just like think about it and that's it. You actually have to mourn. You have to sort of grieve and go through that process and probably forever given if it's someone that's you know really close to you um, in some yeah. at least minimal sense because they're occupying your mind and you have to in some sense pay respect to that um, to that content of your mind in an appropriate way. And mourning is that thing, right? A melancholia yeah. is it's exactly, it's exactly inappropriate um, given that analysis of how mourning works, right? Because melancholia is really just focusing only on your own, uh, on the contents of your mind as contents, like qua contents of your mind, not as representations of, of an actual beloved or valuable or thing that matters, right? Um, and so in that sense of it being purely self-reflective and really narcissistic, it can only ever kind of get twisted and self-hating in the end, because even unconsciously, you're still kind of aware that this is a problem you've created for yourself that has no solution. It's not functional for anything other than continuing its own existence, right? Mm. Um, maintaining its own status as symptom in a way that mourning is, you know, it's, it's functionally guided towards getting you out of it, or at least minimizing it to the point where it's still part of you, but it's not going to sort of overwhelm you in the way that it does in the actual process of mourning. And so how, yeah, it, it seems, no, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, go ahead. No, well, how, how can we then relate to, so Benjamin, you know, Wendy Brown then appeals to Benjamin who makes this distinction between like the thingifying tendency of melancholia to idealize and, and turn this this loved object into a fantastic object, we might say, or a fantasy object. Um, does that mean that mourning then doesn't thingify? Because it still is oriented towards a love object, or is it more that it's oriented towards, like, um, the 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 material flux and flow of a thing. I mean, maybe that's just me romanticizing it and wanting that to be like this nice, neat demarcation that one is somehow attesting to becoming and the other is like trapped within its relationship to a, a static being. But what, what is the difference in the relationship between mourning and melancholy to the object? Yeah, so I think you're exactly right to point out the difference between being and becoming, right? Or static versus flux. Because it does seem yeah. to me like, and I don't know that that, a brand ever gets to this and discussing it this level of detail but it does seem like mourning if so the if the blood's gone then they're not really changing right themselves except in some sense in which you know even even the dead can be changed or whatever um, that's probably yeah. true in some dialectical sense right um but the person when living at the very least is always in flux and so if you really love somebody then or even a group of people then you're always going to love them no matter how they change as long as they're still them, right? Mm. Um, so you can't sort of have an idea in your mind that you're that, that is the object of your love. It's the person that's the object of your love, right? They are the beloved, not the contents of your mind. And so you're kind of like, even when they're gone, you're still really, they're still really the object of your mourning, even though they're gone. 
right? Whereas mm-hmm. since melancholia, it's only ever the contents of your mind that are the object. Um, that's like you have it static and fixed in your head as this ideal, right? And it can't change. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be um, the important difference uh, between the objects of mourning and melancholia, right? Open to flux. Love is, you know, in some sense, you know, unconditional and goes to the the objects no matter what, um, even if they were to change or or whatever. Whereas melancholia is, it's always going to be have the same fixed object, and so it becomes narcissistic and pathological because it has to maintain that object as a static thing in order for it to subsist. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I. Hmm. I don't know what to say. I don't have a button on that, but yeah. Well, yeah, Here, here's what I've been thinking about. And if you want to talk a little bit more about like um, the political details of, of Brown's context, we can maybe do that. But what I couldn't stop thinking about and it really seemed um, most pertinent to me in reading this was thinking about kind of the post-Bernie left. So mm. we had a moment that seemed to kind of spring out of nowhere in 2016 where, um, you know, the Obama two-term presidency seemed like a pretty big letdown. And in retrospect, it was even more of a letdown than you could have possibly imagined, <laughs> given that almost nothing um, continues from that from that era, right? Uh, it's even yeah. like culturally, it seems almost like that never happened <laughs> in an important sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like it'll shock you how much it never happened. Uh, even as much as like the Biden presidency is trying to like cast itself as a continuation of of, of that, it's clearly not going to be able to. Like we're all living in the post-Trump, post-COVID world and all that, right? Um, and so we had this moment in 2016, 2015, 2016, and, and continuing on where like there's this upsurge in um, in sort of left momentum and, you know, DSA chapters are surging and uh, this guy who's been, you know, um, uh self-described democratic socialist becomes the most popular political figure in the country pretty much out of nowhere, even though he's been in the public eye for decades, right? It's kind of like a minor mm-hmm. figure in the public eye. And then all of a sudden becomes a major figure in the public eye. Um, mm-hmm. and becomes the symbol for this left movement. And we had like, you know, Occupy and stuff like that um, a few years before that. So there was obviously some, some groundswell for this kind of stuff. And then it does feel a bit like, literally overnight Jim Clyburn makes some phone calls or whatever and then it's all over um, that weekend mm. when Obama and uh, some other figures basically got everyone to drop out and back Biden even though he was pretty clearly losing it everywhere but but South Carolina or whatever um, mm. and then it was it was over and you know Bernie's too old to run again so he's not gonna He's not going to be that national public figure on the campaign trail anymore. And mm. the squad's too young and too divisive. So they can't really have the sort of um, pull with, um, you know, white working class people that Bernie has. So the assumption goes, right? And so we're just kind of left in this state of melancholia um, uh, or melancholy, right? Where it's kind of like we had our moment and we lost it. And now it's over. Like we we had this ideal moment where you know Bernie made that speech where it was like honestly I think you might agree the most like effective like effective political speech of my lifetime where he gives the whole like are you going to do this for the person next to you yeah <laughs> which 
we had never heard before from a politician and seemed like it seemed like it was heretical to say that in American politics. And that just like it was it was the it was the absolute apotheosis of that movement. It kind of felt like in the ideal. Right. It wasn't actually the apotheosis of it. Dude, um, I still watch every once in a while the Killing Mike <laughs> campaign. Oh, video, yeah. Just just to cry. I watch it and I fucking cry every goddamn time, man. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would 100% agree and feel the exact same way. And I'm kind of wondering, like, is that feeling a little bit being being punctured here or being kind of cast as this form of left melancholy? Or is there something that's appropriately mournful about where we are now compared to where contingently we might have been in 2016 or 2020 if a few things had gone differently or is that well, just how do placing we... faith yeah. in electoral politics in a way that's totally misplaced i okay hold that hold that question <laughs> because because where my mind went was actually kind of more abstract and i wonder if we can bring these together um because i wonder if what i'm about to say is the underpinning of the idealized object that is lost in the melancholic version of feeling the loss that comes from the Bernie Bernie campaign fizzling out versus what we might be able to say is actually an appropriate morning. Okay, and it's this. Um, I was thinking a lot about what this object is that 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 maybe Benjamin and that or particularly that Wendy Brown is talking about. Um, that Wendy Brown is talking about. And I was thinking about the obstetric model of political practice that G.A. Cohen diagnoses. And hear me out. So I wrote this, I wrote this down um, and in my notes here, and I'm going to try and see if this makes sense because it's just chicken scratches and I haven't reread it, so I don't even know. But um, So there's a quote here uh, that I'm going to read from the Wendy Brown article. It says that... Um, in the hollow core of the losses of the left, perhaps in the place of our political unconscious, there's also an unavowed loss. The promise that left analysis and left commitment would supply its adherents a clear and certain path toward the good, the right, and the true. Is it not this promise that formed the basis for much of our pleasure in being on the left, indeed for our self-love as leftists, and our fellow feeling toward other leftists? Right, And I could keep reading, but I'm not gonna. And then here's my note, and I just said, this makes me think of the obstetric model and the hope that accompanies it. The idea here being that if history is pregnant with socialism, and if it is just the theorist's job to press this pregnancy further, then there's a clear path to cling to under that model. But this itself is a fantasy, an object that can't deliver, pardon the pun, not only contingently, or historically, that is not only has it not delivered, but constitutively maybe it can't because this obstetric model itself is insufficient. And maybe it shouldn't be something that we cling to. And the left needs to stop mourning over this object, this obstetric model that somehow socialism is the necessary outcome um, of the mathematical equation of history. It's a self-defeating and maybe self-flagellating and and then I just said maybe we enjoy this melon maybe we enjoy this and that's what leads to melancholy and then I just said drop the fucking object <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> um, but that's what I was thinking. So maybe it's this like 
history, the arc of history bends towards justice, that socialism is there if we mm. just heighten the contradictions of capital. All we need to do is just have a good enough critical um, eye attuned to capitalism. All the theorist needs to do, all the activist needs to do is um, just show that socialism is just around the corner and it will just drop out like a baby on the hospital room floor. I mean, isn't that how babies are born? I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the baby of socialism just drops out onto the floor. Um and so maybe that's the maybe that's the object that is being held onto that is the melancholic underpinning of all of this that is always the 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 motor that drives the melancholy of left melan of of left malaise or left melancholy what do you think yeah dude i mean i'm exactly on that right on the same track there and i think it's actually just a plurality of objects more than just even one i mean i don't think that that obstetric model is probably the most popular with anything other than like hardcore maybe dsa people <laughs> or even like even more than that you know um like more than like more left than democratic socialists and yeah. so probably for most people who maybe share a political vision that we would share it's not even so much that as it is like i think what you said um the arc of history bends towards justice kind of thing this this sense of like every we, we judge the importance of historical events as uh, insofar as they sort of function to produce that more just outcome. So like when Bernie appears in the scene, it's kind of messianic and it's like, oh, he's going to be the one who delivers justice, mm. right? He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one, right? And of course, it's like, it was never, it's never going to work like that. Um, both because no individual can play that role as a messianic figure singularly, right? But also yeah. um, it, it's never going to be the case that like, uh, we can just sit back and passively watch these things happen. That's part of what's um, what's pleasurable about thinking about that kind of messianic trope because you can kind of sit back and just let someone else do the work, right? Um, mm. And so that's one of it, like, you know, archivist history bends towards justice kind of stuff. But I'm also thinking, like, there's also a sense in which there's a futuristic, kind of like a hope-based um, melancholic object here. And, it, and it's maybe it's like... Um, uh, proleptic in the sense of you know anticipating it produces you know certain things in the in the present um, um that are symptomatic and what i mean by that is like this sense that when justice arrives right whether it's socialism in a, in a democratic sense or whatever you know your particular vision is of that when justice arrives like then we're done like politics is done right mm -hmm. and if we can just get to that point then we can kind of like <sighs> breathe and go back to like writing books and playing basketball and playing video games and you know having drinking beers together or something like we can't do any of the fun stuff until the work's done right so let's get the work mm -hmm. done already and get get justice in um and i think that's kind of the vision for a lot of people and mm. that's just not how it works right i mean it's that's it's the struggle it's forever it's never gonna end even if we had all the ideal policies that we all agree on right full democratic socialism and it's perfect and it's not authoritarian right and we remove capitalism and we have like the ideal social relations that exist even then politics still happens right mm. um and so it's hard to accept that and still be motivated to want it because you it, there's some sense in which i think we we convince ourselves that if we just had just social relations then we'd be done and we could just have fun. We could just party, <laughs> right? 
I'm like, that's partially true in the sense of maybe <laughs> less work, right? But it's right. never really going to end. And that you can be kind of melancholic in the face of recognizing that, right? That this is a forever, mm. it's a forever struggle. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that Wendy Brown does talk about is that there is uh, a lost movement, a lost historical moment. And one of the things that I love that she says is she says, not only a lost theoretical and empirical coherence, but a lost way of life and a lost course of pursuit, right? Course of pursuits. And I think it's that way of life that, oh, if we can just get just social relations, then we'll be able to kind of live a, a, a joyous life. Maybe it's that thing. The lost way of life isn't something that ever existed. It's a lost way of an idealized fantastical life right and maybe that's mm. when we're in these moments of despair maybe that's the thing that we are mourning but then also it becomes melancholic when when does it switch over is my question like yeah. so i don't think like it i think that it clearly is mourning um when we look at, let's that, go yeah, back to for the, sure yeah when does it become melancholic is is my question and that's why i'm trying to kind of like identify and say well maybe there's this undercurrent right that is like the real melancholia that was even persistent or maybe insistent even through the bernie campaign that was maybe even in some ways self-defeating amongst certain certain groups in certain people's minds you know um because i don't know that the bernie campaign the bernie momentum whatever the fuck you want to call it i don't know that that is an appropriate um object of melancholic structuring desire i it feels much more like an actually yeah. mourning of a lost object but there is clearly something that we could say that maybe there's a melancholia that characterizes the left so what is that object that's underpinning that it's this is it this loss of a way of life that was envisioned that was supposedly accompanying it the egalitarian vision that's always there um is it the, the lost course of pursuits what is that is that then more like the obstetric model or the arc bends uh, arc of history bends towards justice that it's inevitable right that that we had this path and all we had to do is if we just did the right electoral things or if we just do the right um activist things then those things those things will lead toward the the the, the necessary outcome and so that's the kind of source of of melancholic desire like i'm trying to figure out like what's going on there you know, I mean, you know what the real source of mourning is, dude? It just came upon me, man. Like, can a hot girl wear a Bernie 2020 shirt and dance on Instagram in it and make a million dollars? Because I don't think you could do that anymore. That was like an like a like a, you know, phantasmatic 2019, 2020 thing. It's gone now. And we're yeah, all what happened to OK Boomer? What happened to the OK Boomer girl? Is she still making her money? I mean, we'll never know. Right. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's fuck. gone to a better place clearly <laughs> um no I, th I think you're you're right that like there's clearly an appropriate element of mourning to have because we're not we're in a worse state than we could have been right now <laughs> right like, contingently yeah. things could have been different but also a lot of our thinking about that is going to be like suffused with melancholy because it's based on this ideal state that never really would have existed anyway Right? We're just kind of imagining mm. that it would have this like just mm. social relations obtained and then we're all we can all just party, right? And COVID never happened or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. so it's both, right? And the, the key would be like, well, how do you disentangle or disentangle disentangle the, the melancholy from the 
uh, appropriate mourning. And it does seem to me like, I, I mean, I don't know how we do that, but maybe we can look at the symptoms and say like, wherever wherever that that sentiment, whether it's individually felt or kind of socially felt, wherever it sort of makes you catatonic and freezes you, right? And makes you so that you can't engage in like practical action in any way, then mm-hmm. it's melancholic because that's what melancholia does, right? It's persistent. It only exists so as to continue its own existence and it sort of stops you from doing anything about it. Whereas mourning mm. is a process, right? And it, it's it's a process that never truly ends because you know it, the, the object is lost forever. Um, but in some sense, it, you like work yourself through it or it works through you or whatever such that you're able to, again, engage in like practical deliberation and action like you know the practical syllogisms come back into into force um in yourself and so yeah maybe we can kind of use that as a diagnostic tool and say wherever we talk about and do political analysis on like the state of the american left and it ends up with it's like it's all shit we're all dead you know the kind of Mm -hmm. like climate depression type stuff right um, then that's that's probably coming from a place of, of melancholy in the in this like kind of technical sense. And mm. where it's not, where it's kind of appropriately diagnosing where things went wrong and um, what we can do about it now, then maybe that's that's more stemming from like an appropriate sense of mourning. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder. I feel like like when the left like when the left loses, right? And the left loses a lot. Um, the Washington there's journals, real mourning. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something real that's being lost, right? Um, but maybe there's just this. Maybe this is the curse of fucking being human. Um, and then this is what I would then wonder is how how can we distinguish this from the quote unquote right? Like if we're gonna make these like really simple bifurcations, let's just do it for the sake of like an abstract analysis here, right? So um what drives the left even through this melancholy? And is it self-defeating that they're kind of like perpetuating perpetually holding on to this like lost object? And does that somehow sap its vitality? And is it is it essentially nihilistic in the Nietzschean sense is it a a clamoring a desire for a a world that never was or a world that never can be and it's in some ways then a denial of this world now this is Stuart Hall's critique that Wendy Brown is trying to kind of argue because maybe this state of melancholia actually forecloses our ability to adequately analyze the quote character of this age right whatever that means and so maybe there's a sense in which we we Insofar as we're living in this melancholic state, we then put up a prism over our eyes that disallows our ability um, to actually even even see what is before us. And so there needs to be a little bit more of an affirmational orientation to the state of things, you know, maybe not quite in the amor fati sense, the kind of like um, saying yes and loving everything, but maybe, I don't know. Um, but it does seem that there's something that is that is like our own like crutches that we're that we're placing in our ability to kind of like walk forward. And then it makes me wonder, okay, so then so then so then what 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 characterizes the right? Is the right characterized by this? And in some ways, if 
and this is something else that Wendy Brown talks about with regards to like traditionalism and conservatism, if there is a traditionalism in that characterizes this left melancholia because it's attached to some past object, some lost past object, then is the right just essentially melancholic? Because it's it's that but angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's then how pissed off melancholia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fucking it's like uh they're imagining Sisyphus happy. Is that what it is? Like <laughs> Like they're just fucking pushing the rock up the hill endlessly, but they're like fuck it because they're just angry. I don't know. Like I don't know what. Like what is it? Like what is it that characterizes the difference? And then what would be a what would it look like to even truly break outside of of either of those tendencies, break out of those bounds? And and she kind of pays um, a little bit of attention in this final paragraph. I mean, this is kind of a really short, kind of provocative article, so it isn't really like super extensive in her offerings. But she basically says, like, what kind of political and economic order can we imagine that's neither state-run nor utopian, neither repressive nor libertarian, um, neither economically impoverished nor culturally gray? You know, how could we do this? And uh, she doesn't really offer, like, I mean, like a little bit of, like, you know, uh, uh, a spirit that would embrace the notion of a deep and indeed unsettling transformation of society rather than one that recoils at this prospect. So is that it? Is that we just need to be, like, stringently attached to the deep and unsettling transformation of society like that sounds great and as a romantic i'm like fuck yeah let's throw that grenade in there but at the same time (laughs) that also is kind of maybe a little bit harmful and there's a little bit of like i I can just imagine the sort of like a a a schumpet schumpeter like creative destruction kind of thing that capital is like yeah throw that fucking grenade because we're gonna be right there to pick up the pieces and you know so it's like i don't know like what what does it mean to embrace this notion of a deep and and an unsettling transformation of society that is non-melancholic that uh i don't know that's that's kind of what i'm wondering yeah that that whole passage was i think beautifully written and but it's it's kind of amorphous to me like i i don't i don't think it means be open to like blowing up the state right (laughs) right that 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 wouldn't necessarily be good in the sense of like full-on violent revolution from the ground up um nor do i think it's like kind of a prescient prediction of you know a natural disaster or a pandemic which blows up all our social relations and then we just are happy about it because it means more opportunity to change things i don't think it's that either right (laughs) right it seems like it's it's more just uh, a sort of state of being, of openness, in a way that's yeah. that's different than what melancholy allows. Because melancholy, you you literally cannot be open to any sort of change, since melancholy no. is sort of constitutively static, right? It has to keep itself in order to subsist as melancholy. It has to keep the contents of one's mind like the same over time. Um, that's right. But even that seems really abstract and it seems like that openness is certainly better than the melancholic subject position right but also could be bad (laughs) like it doesn't give you like the content necessary to determine what's actually like the good the social good that you want it just means like it's going to be somewhere in that openness right but i don't know where and maybe that is like the subject position you have to occupy like just have that openness and then within that openness it could go good or bad but it could go good, whereas in the melancholic position, it's never gonna be good, right? You're kind of okay. And then to add failure, to add another wrinkle, is there not potentially a fetishization of openness itself yeah. here? 
Yeah. And this, uh, it could you know, this way. is something. It itself would be melancholic, right? Exactly. And this is something that gets leveled against like philosophies of the event and, and um, like perpetual revolution kind of stuff. It's like, are you just romanticizing endless openness? And is that just chaos that you're like, what, what exactly, how do you think about that in terms of like actual content and that we can actually sink our teeth into without just being like some like Deleuzian um, kind of schizo, uh, schizo fucking nomad entity that's just fucking rhizomatically like scrambling codes all the time you know yeah i mean it does sound like like the like the classic kind of freudian psychoanalysis or freudian analysis of you know its own function um as psychoanalysis which is to get rid of like you know what's what's the phrase that he uses like complete and utter misery and replace it with normal unhappiness or something like that Hmm. um it's like debilitating misery you can't live with um, but normal unhappiness you can so let's just get to there <laughs> and we'll worry about like happiness and contentment and stuff later um, and maybe this is that for political analysis and it's just saying look I don't know how we can actually think of what a non-authoritarian egalitarian um, but non-libertarian social uh, system would look like whatever that is though before we can even get to talking about that Let's just get away from this disease that's plaguing us. Like, let's get ourselves not sick, and then we can yeah. think about how to be healthy. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is probably appropriate because you know we are dealing with a bit of a moment of loss, and so you have to think about, well, what do we do in a moment of loss? How do we appropriately mourn without becoming melancholic, so that tomorrow, whenever that comes, we're actually ready to get back into the back into the fight. Hmm. Back into the yeah. podcasting game, just like we did on Back. this podcast. Hell yeah, man! This is what. So I, I told you, I was feeling. I've been feeling a little down lately, and just not. I like my voice. I just felt like, I don't know what it was. Like I felt a little bit of a fire before, where I was like, I'm gonna fucking produce some like YouTube content, and it was great. One, it's a lot of work, but and so maybe part <laughs> of me was kind of like, why am I doing all of this? You know, but um, but. <laughs> Um, but, but even more than that, I was kind of like, I just wanted to like create stuff. I just wanted to like be with beauty for a little bit, you know? And I feel like it, that maybe that's just like a totally privileged and entitled, like middle-class white yuppie boy. That's like, I just want to have like fucking beautiful sunsets, man. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't know, but I just wanted to like, but I think it's more than that because I I think it, it's like, I want to just create stuff that like actually flows from the the core of my being and that will just if it gets released out there into the world I want it to mean something different than me feeling like I'm involved in what seems to be like a very sort of static and lateral and like horizontal like cultural like the culture war argument set of culture war arguments and then even academia it's like do I really want to just like fucking nitpick the minutia over you know, the difference between this word and that word and how it like, like part of me does because part of me loves that, you know, like the nerd <laughs> part of me is like, oh, fuck, that's really fun. Let's just like dig into the nitty gritty of this really technical philosophical debate. And then part of me is like, fuck, man, I just want to like move stuff forward. And I think I felt static or I, I feel static sometimes with like politics. And maybe there's something about politics that is like it's herky jerky, you know, there's fits and starts and things like that. But I think I just was like, fuck, I just want to like write poetry and I want to just like make music and I just want to like be on stage and I just want to like, I, 
if I have a conversation with Troy, I want it to be something that like flows from something within me that is like bursting forth that feels more authentic than just like, I don't know, like we're just fitting ourselves within these pre-established slots of, of the, the kind of cultural and social and political discourse. Does that make sense? And so maybe that's, and I don't know if I'm like in like a melancholic stage, like I'm feeling like a lost object. And what is it? Is it the promise of that like somehow doing academic philosophy or political philosophy that somehow that would be some sort of uh, lead to freedom or something like that or it would have some sort of like liberatory revolutionary impetus to it is that what I'm feeling the loss I don't know but it's definitely hit me in some ways and I kind of like fuck man I just want to create like just create stuff and so maybe that's my own romanticism my romanticism of my type of openness I'm saying the same thing that Wendy Brown's saying but for me it's like taking more of like a an artistic tone than political yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the same for you because the situation in Australia has been a lot different over the last you know couple of years than here. But I do think that there's a sense in which there's a lot of a, appropriate mourning going on about the loss of community, which itself is the condition of possibility for mourning in the first place, right? You have to be mm. sort of in connection with other things that matter, other people and stuff, in order mm. for the loss their loss to produce mourning in you, right? And you know, I haven't been on campus in um, since March of 2020 um, mm. and won't be until the fall. And even then, I don't know what's going to happen as far as the, the variants and stuff are concerned. So haven't been with students or with um, colleagues for over, you know, for like a year and a half. Um, and I'm teaching a summer class right now with students. And it's like it's clearly getting to everybody. Just mm. uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm just like interpreting it through my own experience, but it's <laughs> it's difficult because I want so badly to be in connection with everybody like I'm used to and it fuels me and I love being around students that are inquisitive and they are you know into stuff and like in the room with them and you feel the energy and, and all that and it's just not there everyone's just kind of going through the motions to get it done and it's really mm. destabilizing and debilitating and depressing um, and not so much that you just can't do it or whatever like you still get through it but it's just not as invigorating as you're used to and there's a real loss there um, and I do think that like the whole COVID experience is we should be appropriately mourning that loss and wanting to get it back, you know, more than it back. We want that plus, you know, we want like those good and healthy and invigorating social relations to exist nearly everywhere in society, not to that same degree, but, you know, to some degree. Um, and that's what we want ultimately, but it's appropriate, I think, to kind of mourn that loss and we don't want to fall into melancholy where you like idealize that such that it's like the only thing that that matters in the world or whatever um but that's a a real thing and i i think we're all kind of feeling that right now and appropriately worried about it never really coming to an end hmm fuck yeah so what do we do man what do we do we just do podcasts man that's what we yeah. do yeah, <laughs> we podcast through podcasting at the end of the world. That's what we do. Podcasting after the end of the world. That's our new tagline. <laughs> oh man, Fuck. would we, we really should... change our tagline? Would we do that? <laughs> uh, no, but we just add it. It could be like a, a supplementary one. You know, it could be just a mantra that pops up. After the end of the world. With <laughs> yeah, <me>. exactly. <laughs> That's actually fucking great. That's actually fucking great. Uh, all right. Well, um, why don't we wrap up the main segment there? Um, I would just encourage people. It's open access, isn't it? This article. Yeah. 
yeah, it's open access. Um, I'll put the link down in the show notes so you can check it out. It was in, what, Boundary 2 is the name of the journal. It was released by Duke University Press. It's called Resisting Left Melancholy by Wendy Brown. Oh, and also, I was this many years old when I found out that Wendy Brown is uh, married to Judith Butler. I did know that, but I had forgotten, I think. What the fuck, yeah. man? I want to sit at their dinner table. Man. <laughs> I did not know this. I was I was on her Wikipedia page and it said partner Judith Butler and I was like, "What?" I I always want to know when I hear like academics or artists that are together or something like that. I'm like, "I want to know like how the other person is impacted or influenced the other person's work. Like the push and the pull, you know? Like I'm really yeah. curious. I I'm really curious. I'd love to I'd love to like if there were a way to understand that, and I'm sure that in interviews or something like that, they may have mentioned like you know, um, you know, this person impacted me in this way, and then they impacted me in this way or whatever. But yeah, I did not know that. So 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 is is Wendy couple. Brown and Ju- is Wendy Brown and Judith Butler being a couple, kind of like the philosophical equivalent of LeBron James and Anthony Davis, like being a couple, like having sex (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 not just teammates Uh, but like (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and there's like and and in what ways do they elevate each other's game right and like when one is injured and they're on their own you know the it doesn't function as as well and so they come back together and they can do their own thing and they may grow individually right and they may learn some new skills and things like that but when they come back together it's magic yeah that's what i wonder i i do wonder that um, this is what we've lost with, with losing the homoeroticism of like Greco-Roman culture when it comes to like <laughs> war and stuff. If we still had that, we would have such a better sports culture, I think. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's always this like repressed stuff. It's like, guys, listen, you're always smacking each other's asses and whipping, like looking at each other's just balls get on in the with locker it. room. <laughs> yeah, just fucking. You know you want to. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Um, so, yeah, check that article out. Uh, Resisting Left Melancholy by Wendy Brown. It's really good. It's short. It's only like 10 pages, and uh, it's super accessible, and it's just a kind of nice, provocative think piece. So, yeah. Let's get into our final segment, brother. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right. Now it's time for the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. Troy has drawn the straw for this week. So, T-Roy, what is giving you meaning, brother? Dude, Space Jam is good. The new one? No, Space Jam, nineteen ninety five. Original. Well, aren't it's they good. doing a remake with with LeBron? Yeah, that's why I'm talking about it this week because the the um, the sequel, not a remake, is coming out. Oh, okay, uh, I don't know yeah. if it will be good. I'm hopeful it will at least be entertaining, right? But it seems yeah. like it's a hot take. It's a flaming hot take nowadays to say that the original Space Jam is good is it and it was it on is. tv here the other it was it was on tv and i didn't watch it but we were kind of like um just uh, briefly like looking at the tv every once in a while and uh, one of one of my friends charlie she was like actually the animation's really good <laughs> yeah i mean it's not like it's certainly not a great movie right nor is it a thing that like you have to watch if you don't like basketball or whatever but it's good and it's certainly better than it has any right to be given that if you told me hey we're gonna make a movie that's going to combine live action and Looney Tunes animation style <laughs> where 
Michael Jordan gets abducted and has to play a basketball game to like save Earth with the Looney Tunes characters. If I told you that, I mean, you'd have to be drunk or like making a bet with somebody to think that that yep. would be a good idea. <laughs> but it works. And may- maybe the fact that I saw it when I was a kid, I think it came out in 95, right? Like, or thereabouts. Probably. Um, I was like nine or 10 years old when, when I see it for the first time. And I wasn't um, a Michael Jordan fan at all. In fact, I, I didn't like Michael Jordan very much, but I was a huge basketball nerd. Um, so I, I loved the movie. And maybe part of it's, you know, this kind of fantastical image in my head of being a kid and loving basketball and loving that, like, the basketball part of my life was now a cultural moment that everyone was talking about and was a big thing. Uh, And I'm sure that's part of it, right? But even, like, I saw it recently. Recently, I mean, like, within the last few years. I remember as, like, a a full-fledged adult with critical attitudes and, like, prone a bit towards overanalyzing stuff and all that, especially overanalyzing things I used to think were good and oftentimes finding things I used to think were good were no longer good <laughs> and being used mm. to that sort of process of destroying your idols, right? And watching it and be like, you know what? This isn't like the best thing in the world. It's not great or anything, but it's good. Like it's funny. It's entertaining. Jordan's actually not bad in it overall, given that he's, you know, an athlete, not an actor. Um, <laughs> right. And it's just, it's like, one of the funnest things to discuss as a basketball fan is the who would be the team you put together to fight the aliens. I love that discussion, right? Because it means you have to put together a team, right? That works together, not just who are the five best players ever or whatever. And you don't really know the skills of your opponents other than that they're awesome, right? Because they're aliens, and if they're starting this game, it's because they're awesome, right? They've planned this, right? They're not just like, you know, they're not just noobs. So you just got to put together the best team you can and hope not to get slaughtered, right? That's like the best basketball discussion you can go through um, as far as like talking about the greats, right? Who'd be the greatest team? And we're talking about that right now, especially given the like Team USA is starting their Olympic uh, exhibition games. Um, for the summer, yeah. and they've lost twice <laughs> to um, Australia and Nigeria, which has been um, quite the quite the upsurge in basketball circles about those losses happening. Yeah, uh, dude. It, in large part because Team USA just picked up like who are the best players we can get to come over here. Who cares how they fit? And so now they have a bunch of skinny, score first, no defense players who all are like trying to bait for fouls and then realizing the European refs don't call fouls the way that, you know, the NBA refs do. And so now they're just not scoring. (laughs) Um, So it's like the classic example of exactly who you wouldn't put together to fight the aliens kind of a thing. Right. So the the Olympic team, I love the Olympic basketball um, kind of experience because it's about building a team on the fly out of like the best players. And how do you do that in a way that doesn't suck? And it's become even more interesting because now the world's better than it used to be, right? Um, Yeah. Anyway, uh, tangent there. The original Space (laughs) Jam is good for, like, taking that, like, uh, 2 a.m. kind of drunk, going in and out and having burgers because you're 20 and you can still do that without being incredibly sick afterwards. And then just talking about bullshit type of thing and putting it into a movie. And it actually works. It's kind of like how fun that 2 a.m. in and out slightly drunk experience is. It's kind of fun in that same mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah. So I don't know if this new one will be good. 
But you know what? If you kind of like basketball and you don't have too much of a critical attitude, watch the original Space Jam because it's pretty good. I don't remember anything from the original really except when they're talking to Bill Murray and they're <laughs> Bill is like, Larry yeah, white people don't play. Yeah, well, he's like, white people don't play basketball. And uh, and and Michael Jordan looks at Larry Bird and goes, Larry's white. And Bill says, Larry's not white. Larry's clear. He's clear. And I, <laughs> I have always fucking loved that so much. <laughs> oh, I know, Jesus. dude. And I watched, I watched just like a snippet of thing on YouTube recently about like all the shit talking that Larry Bird used to do. I never realized how much of a oh, fucking editor and just a shit talker Larry Bird was. And whenever I think of Larry Bird, I think of that line. I'm like, Larry's not white. Larry's clear. You know, and I'm actually really disappointed that when I watch political analysts and they talk about like white basketball players, nobody ever mentions that line. You know, I want somebody when they're like, oh, you know, like, you know, uh, white basketball players. And they're like, oh, but Larry, Larry Bird was a white basketball player. I want somebody to be like, no, 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 Larry's not white. Larry's clear. No one ever fucking references it. And I always think it in my head. And I just want that to happen. So, dude, and what well, were they called? The, the, mon- the Monstars? Yeah, the Monstars, dude. <laughs> yeah okay yeah sorry well that's and that's that's what i remember i remember that so i mean not to go too down this road but i love this this kind of this a point to make about larry bird is <laughs> you know in the 80s and even now um the the great white basketball player kind of has to be cast as this like he's gritty he's not that athletic so he has to get off on his uh or sort of get um far off of his you know extreme work ethic and grit. Yeah, he's blue collar. all these like psycholo- psychological stuff, yeah, right? He's, that in, they're he's in Boston, a working class town. <laughs> yeah. But dude, and like, it was true that he had an incredible work ethic. So did all the greatest players of all time, right? That's how right. they became the greatest players of all time. <laughs> right, and, and, right. and Larry Bird couldn't jump very high, but he was 6'9 and had some of like the best hands and hand eye coordination and footwork imaginable. And that's not all just skill, a lot of that's talent, right? Mm. Um, but even so, it, they, they kind of like move, like obscure the fact that he was a legendary shit talker. I mean, just like yes. one of the greatest ever. And that's an awesome trait to have as a basketball player, right? There's a game, I think it was against the Hawks, where um, he's just like destroying them, right? And somebody on the bench was shit talking him or something. I can't remember the, the exact um, content, but basically Bird gets pissed off. And he starts playing the rest of the game with his left hand. And you can, like, watch YouTube videos. He <laughs> shoots all the rest of the shots of the game with his left hand, scores, like, 48 points or something, and then and then just, like, stares down the bench. And he's like, fuck you guys. Like, you guys suck. <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> and he yeah. was that guy. He was that guy. And it does not fit the stereotype of the quiet, gritty, um, white basketball savior, right? But good right. because it's way more awesome this way. Yeah, because there's also that also, and this is definitely like uh, like probably a, a pretty heavy dose of racism that's like, oh, like uh, when a white guy plays, he's like civil and polite and he's hardworking and he does the fundamentals. He doesn't do the flashy stuff, whereas like the black guys, they're the ones who are shit talking because it's like playground ball, right, sort of thing. So mm-hmm. there's also a, another element of like racializing that takes place here, I think, uh, as well when you look at like the whole Larry Bird Larry Bird, and that was totally epitomized by the difference between the Boston Celtics and then the Showtime Lakers, right? Which so. is hilarious, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the civil versus savage thing, right? Which is way more the case in yeah. baseball today with the whole debate over whether or not you're allowed to be have fun playing baseball. 
Um, mm. It's very clear there, right? But yeah, in basketball, that was the sort of, you know, the the you know white Larry Bird versus the black Magic Johnson, which is so funny because Larry Bird was incredibly flashy. <laughs> dude, <laughs> watch some YouTube videos of this guy. He, he throws behind-the-back passes like, like nobody else, yeah. dude, all the time. Yeah. He was just as flashy as Magic. He didn't have, like, you know, the charismatic smile and stuff that that magic did so on camera he didn't he wasn't as as flashy and charismatic but he played with all of the flash um that you know the the 80s showtime lakers did yeah 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 does he factor heavily in space jam besides just like that golf scene or is he on the team larry bird yeah does he go to space with michael no no he's just i think he's just in that golfing scene and maybe he's in a couple more scenes that I, i don't remember exactly but he's not one of the guys that like um, the the monsters steal the powers from that was I bet you I can even remember who it was it was Charles Barkley, Muggsy Bogues, Larry Johnson, and oh, Sean Bradley. That's right, I forgot. So that's what they do. So they steal the powers from the NBA players. Okay, yeah, and which, then is, Michael, which is funny, right? Because I, Charles Barkley was like one of the greatest players in the league at that time, right? Yeah, Muggsy Bogues was like a good player. But he wasn't an all-star. Sean Bradley he was, was never, yeah. a good player, never an all-star. Larry Johnson was an all-star, but wasn't like a top 10 player or anything. So they just they just went and stole powers from one great player in Charles Barkley and three weird-looking guys. Because <laughs> they just <laughs> wanted to really look short. weird. <laughs> yeah, a guy that's really short, a guy that's really tall, and then Larry Johnson, who's grandmama. <laughs> yeah, grandmama, who's like round, but like incredibly strong. Yeah, right. yeah, and then and then and then on the Michael Jordan side, was it Michael, Bill Murray, and then Looney Tunes? Yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll have to rewatch it. Do you have any hope for the sequel? Like, are you looking forward to the LeBron version? I don't know. I'm gonna see it. I think it'll it'll probably be enjoyable, but the kind of thing you forget about immediately, which is I think is appropriate for the kind of movie that it is, right? Um, it probably it's won't probably have that nine- same. It's for the nine and ten year olds. That's probably or twelve yeah. year olds, you know. With a, with some nods to nostalgia for like people like our generation, you know. Yeah, I'm worried it's going to overdose on nostalgia to the point where it's like it's it's um it's like self aware, <laughs> um, yeah. which can be kind of nauseating. So I'm worried about that. I'm curious how they're going to play in the other NBA players because I think it's it's Damian Lillard, Clay Thompson, Anthony Davis, and I think there's a WNBA player, but I can't remember who. I feel bad for that's the one person that I forget. Mm. Um, yeah, but that I think those are the the ones that they're using, and it's not going to be like I don't know if it's going to be stealing the powers or how they're going to do it, but they're still involving four other NBA players in it. That'll be cool. Yeah, I uh, I don't really care too much, but I'm sure I'll watch it at some point just because you know because it's called Space Jam and yeah, dude, yeah, fuck dude, yeah, it's, why it's not? Fucking, it's it's the Space Jam. You got to check it out. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> check it out, and I bet you it'll have good music. I bet you the soundtrack will be good. That's what I'll say. Yeah, and I bet Don Cheadle will be good. He's apparently the villain in it. So. Oh sweet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's got lots going for it already. All right. So let's go ahead I want to wrap hear... up the episode. Oh yeah, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. What I want to hear from y'all is: Is Space Jam good, or is it really just the nostalgia kicking in for me? Because I think that it's not just that, even though it's partially that. So somebody tell me, is Space Jam actually good from someone who's not, doesn't have the like, you know, um, childlike love of basketball um, sort of directing their own opinions? Yeah. 
And if you want, you can tweet us, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can hit us up on Discord if you are a patron. If you're not a patron, head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We'll go ahead and wrap up the episode here. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We back. We'll see you soon. Troy, is there anything else that we got to say that I left out that you can think of? Because I can't think of anything. What what, what may I have missed out? Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? How does it go? Das Vidania Amerikanski? Do, 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 do.